Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. You guys made it. I'm so glad you made it this morning. Uh, turn to your neighbor and just look at him for about five seconds and then say, I love you. Make it awkward. Turn to your second choice and just tell him how much you love the Dallas Cowboys. Come on. Love the Cowboys. Man, I just love, I just love second service. You guys are so rebellious here. I love it. Uh, do we have any Seahawks fans here? We got a few Seahawks fans. All right. Uh, yeah, it's all right. Do we have any um, uh, L.A. Ram fans? Got a few of you. Do we have an, any Oakland Raider fans? All right. We just ask you to stand up. You're, you're dismissed at this time. We're going to practice exclusion. Actually, I love it. We have a lot of Raider fans and Niner fans, a lot of people coming from California. They're moving to God's country. And, uh, man, I'm glad you are here uh, this morning. Well, we're in our sermon series, Colossians, and we, uh, we're actually going to get into chapter 3 today. Can I get an amen? If you know anything about our sermon series, I rarely get out of the book, uh, actually the first chapter, and uh, I actually spent in, a, in the Gospel of Mark series, I spent, what, nine months in chapter one, but uh, it's taken me six weeks to get into chapter three. So I'm going to read uh, just a few verses. We're going to begin in Colossians chapter two, verse 13. Paul is writing most likely from Ephesus, okay? Uh, and uh, he's uh, writing from prison, and he, uh, he's writing to a, a young church, uh, who most of whom are, were, were formerly pagan, and now they're trying to figure out how to be a Christian and trying to think like a Christian. So really this whole sermon series is learning how to think like a Christian. And so we're going to try to do that today, but before I get into our text, uh, just, just as a backdrop, I want to share a little bit about my life. Can I do that? Can I sing for you? No, I'm kidding. I ain't going to sing for you. So I, I remember as a young man, it's going to be hard to believe, but uh, I was a redhead and uh, grew up in the 80s. And uh, for redheads in the 80s, we just got a lot of, got a lot of flack. And uh, I remember got, I called names most of my life. And uh, it was kind of a struggle, legitimately a struggle. Part of it was I looked like an alien growing up. I had crazy auburn red hair, I had big ears, I had buck teeth, my skin was translucent, and all the redheads said amen. So it really did. I, I couldn't help it, guys. I mean, this is how God made me. And, uh, but people, you know, sometimes would make fun of my appearance. And uh, just, I just would ask one thing. Don't, don't tell me who you think I look like because it's always bad, okay? It's always bad. I always get, like, the worst people. Um, but growing up was a bit of... A struggle. I remember, um, and part of the problem was I, I grew up in a beautiful family. My dad was six foot five, was a good looking guy. My mom, she was voted my senior year by all my basketball teammates, the prettiest mom in the school. It was a little bit weird, a little bit awkward, but she was beautiful. Uh, I had two beautiful sisters, tall, you know, they modeled. And then you had me, like I was the archetype of every redheaded stepchild. And I remember I had a friend, so I was 11, I think I was 11, and there was this girl, and she, she looked at me, and she, actually, I think my dad was right around the corner, and she saw my dad, and then she looked at me, and she said, do you, do you think that when you grow up, you'll look like him? And I knew what she was saying, you ugly, right? You got problems, but maybe there's hope for you. And so that was kind of like my life 
And I remember growing up, I had my best friends were my sisters. We always had a great time. Every now and then they would throw butter knives at me and they'd do a few exorcisms at our house. And, uh, but I remember we would get into arguments. And so when they couldn't handle my airtight logic, because I would dominate them with reason and logic, they would either throw butter knives at me, you know, whatever, uh, or, or they would say, this is their retort, and it devastated me. They would say, if they were just exasperated, Chris, did you know you were adopted? And it was a conversation stopper for me. And there's nothing wrong with adoption. We've adopted three beautiful kids. Uh, adoption is biblical. Can I get any man? But back there in the 80s, we had closed adoption. And, you know, it was caricatured. And, and I just, it would devastate me when my sisters would, would say something like that. Because, you know, I, I, I struggled with that. I didn't look like my, my family at all. And I remember I had to go to my parents and ask them if I was legitimately their child. And uh, I actually had them show me the birth certificate. And I think my mom actually, in proxy for me, called the hospital to confirm that nothing got switched, right? That's legit. That's legit. And so I I remember I just, I I had these struggles. And at times in in moments of vulnerability, I questioned whether... Uh, I was really a part of this family. And once I was persuaded by my parents, um, I I came to the realization, okay, I don't have to get in this family, right? Trace Rochelle, I don't got to get in this family. Uh, I I just have to learn how to stay in. Don't have to get in. Can I get any man of that? I just have to learn to stay in, meaning that I'm not going to let my sisters convince me that I'm not a part of this family. I'm not going to let my appearance convince me that I'm not a part of this family. Uh, I am a part of this family. Uh, I am who I am by the grace of God, and I might not look like my dad or look like my mom, and I might look like an alien, but I belong in this family. And come hell or high water, no one is going to exclude me. And I'm still working. I have some therapy. I'm still working through some of my issues. But I think this is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 2. The whole matter of Colossians 2, 13 through the end of the chapters is focused around exclusion. Everyone say exclusion. So he, he writes in verse 13, he says, And you who were dead... In your trespasses, this is before Christ, you were under trespass, you were under the dehumanizing forces and powers of this world, and he continues, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Let me just camp on this thought really quick. Uncircumcision, as I mentioned last week, was a reference to your pagan status. Circumcision in this ancient setting referred to a racial people. It was a racial identity marker. In other words, if you were circumcised, that was an identity marker or it marked you out as the covenant people of God. And you wanted to be in the covenant people of God. God took a a group of people and he blessed them so that they could be a blessing to the world. He promised them uh, new heavens, new earth. He said he would put their life together. He wouldn't curse them, but he would bless them so that the blessing of God, the glory of God, his love, his wisdom would flow through them. But here we have Jesus who comes on the scene, and Paul made the case earlier that in his death, everyone say in his death, 
this circumcision, uncircumcision dialectic no longer applies to those who are in Christ. So your ethnicity, so in other words, belonging to God's family is not predicated on your ethnic makeup or your racial designation or your past, come on, or whether you're a redhead or not or whether you're a moral exemplar, whether you drink Pepsi or not, or you wear khakis or not, or maybe you raise your kids this way or that way. No, being a part of God's family, belonging in this beautiful, diverse family is not predicated on anything that you've achieved. It's all based on the achievements of Jesus. And so this is why racism is so wrong. Don't shout me down today. Racism is anti-Christ, it's anti-creation, it's anti-cosmos. Racism, yes, is not just a skin problem, it is a sin problem, but it's much more than that. It's a Satan problem. James chapter 3 makes it very clear. There is a link between demonic thinking and calling down curses on those who bear the image of God. So if you say, some, say something negative about someone's skin color, you're not just saying something negative about someone's skin color. You're actually, because they're made, everyone is made in the image of God, you're actually attacking God himself. And that's why there's an intimate link between Satanism and racism. Because in Christ... There's no longer 30 different families. You have this ethnic family here, and you have this ethnic family here, and they're all fighting each other. Or you have this group or this demographic, right? And we're all kind of separate. We're all kind of doing our own thing, right, in the kingdom of Jesus. That's no longer the case. There's only one family in the kingdom of Jesus, And it's a beautifully diverse family. It's not monochromatic. We're all just, we we have differences. And yes, we can embrace those differences. But those differences do not get us in or exclude us from the family of God. It's the achievements of Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection that launched new creation, obliterated these false arrangements of haves, and have nots, and brought and joined together through Jesus, is joined together all the people of the world who by faith and repentance placed their allegiance in Jesus. So there's no white power in the kingdom of Jesus. There's no black power in the kingdom of Jesus. There is only God's power. And it's God's power that brings us together. And yes, we need to listen to each other. Can I get an amen? Justification by faith. I mentioned this last week, I think, in our 5 o'clock service. Is the most powerful desegregating force in human history. So you have one racial family now opened up to the pagan world. And all people can get included into the family of God. That's in essence what justification by faith is all about. So the uncircumcision of your flesh is no longer an issue through the paradoxical death of Jesus. God hid his victory over the powers through the death of his son. 
and having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Can I get an amen to that? Verse 14, we move by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is the cosmic victory motif. This is Christus Victor. Jesus, through his death, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So every shadowy power, every addiction, every false label, everything that you used to be is, has been defeated by Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are no longer under this demonic regime, under these shadowy powers. Your addiction, come on, has been defeated already through Jesus. Those things that trip you up. The things that mess with your mind have already been defeated in Jesus because you're no longer under them. You are under Jesus. And he's Lord of the cosmos. And he absorbed sin and death in his body. And he's stinking. Can I say that in church? Defeated all evil and corruption. And then he moves to verse 16. He continues with this whole theme or leitmotif of exclusion. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment. On you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What, what Paul is saying is not, okay, don't let anybody judge you or criticize you or tell you the truth or whatever. Like us modern thinkers, uh, you know, we have moral relativism in our head. We're like, nah, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what I am or what I'm not. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying let no one on the basis of food laws and drink laws and festivals and new moon or Sabbaths exclude you from family membership. So if you have any theologues here, this is all about ecclesiology. This is about, okay, let no one tell you, um, based on maybe your non-observance of these food laws or festivals or new moon or Sabbath, that you're somehow like a part of the JV team. Like somehow you're second class, right? There's, there's this kind of subtle heresy that's growing. We don't know how big it was growing in this young church that's suggesting that if you don't observe these laws, uh, you no longer have uh, the identity marker of being a part of God's family. And Paul says, homie, don't play that. Right? Because of Jesus. Food laws, just so you know, we go back to the purity world of Jesus, the underpinning of food laws was all about withdrawal. We, we have, for example, these Maccabean warriors who chose death and martyrdom over eating unclean food. Why? Because food laws was a way of distinction. It was a way to mark out God's people. And so this is a big statement. Paul is saying food laws, uh, practicing the Sabbath, the new moon, these festivals, they no longer apply to us. Question is, okay, why? He gives us the answer in verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, everyone say the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. Paul is making um, a, a pretty clear argument here. Why do you want to cling to the shadow world if the reality has already come? He's, he's, he's evoking the story of Israel, in the Old Testament, the Torah, and he's making a claim that Jesus is the dramatic fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Torah. So if Jesus is the climax 
of the covenant, the old covenant, the old covenant pointed to the days of Jesus. Why would we want to go back to the shadow world? These regulations, uh, these festivals, uh, the food laws, circumcision belongs to the shadow world. If you like stranger things, that's kind of like that, right? The underworld. It's, it's out of date, in other, other words. Why would you want to cling to that? If the age of the king, the future of God's world, has arrived in the present. It's kind of like, man, how many of you growing up, you, you grew up in the 90s and you love Blockbuster? Did you love going to Blockbuster? I actually miss it. How many of you miss going to Blockbuster? I miss it. Uh, I mean, I love going into the store and, you know, smelling the popcorn. I love popcorn smell. I love the butter, you know, and then all the candy in the front. And then you spend about 45 minutes. Like, some of you are like, what did you guys used to do? It was an experience, right? You get away. It's a Friday night. And you go and you spend about 45 minutes looking at all these different movies, right? And then you had Netflix that came on the scene. And then you had Apple TV and you had all these different, you know, this technology improvements, which rendered Blockbuster obsolete, out of date, right? So maybe, maybe you have longings uh, for Blockbuster, but it's no longer in existence. It's bankrupt, right? And Paul is making the argument, hey, you might like the old stuff, but it's bankrupt. It's out of date. Why go back when the new has arrived? God's brand new world has crashed into, into creation. And you and I belong in this new creation project of God healing Come on, the races. God healing his people. God bringing all things together, reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. The new has come. God's new world has come. Why do you want the past? It all belongs. These festivals belong to the old world. So this is why I get confused, and I've heard of churches who, they're like, they evaluate your membership or your belonging in the family of, of God by how you raise your kids. Like some people are like, well, man, if you don't homeschool your kids, you can't be a part of your church. I've heard of churches like this. You gotta wear khakis. Okay, I'm done right there. <laughs> I'm done, right? If you wear khakis, that's great. I just, but that's not my kind of church, right? You wear khakis and you gotta raise your kids and you gotta homeschool them. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with homeschooling, but if your marker or the way you want to distinguish yourself from the world is rooted in homeschooling your kid, you've, you've missed the point. Jesus is your starting point. And the problem is Christians just get weirded out about like, like we're not going to celebrate Easter, or we're not going to celebrate Christmas, or we're going to raise our kids this way, or we're going to send them to public school, and you have your preferences. And there's nothing wrong with your preferences. Some of you might be a part of the Democratic Party. Some of you might be part of the Republican Party. You have your preferences. But those preferences cannot be used to exclude other people from belonging in the family of God. St. Augustine, his dictum, at least we think St. Augustine said this, he said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, humility. But in all things, charity. So when you come to this church, we are not going to um, identify you as a fully functioning member of God based on how you simply raise your kids, right, or what festivals you're a part of, or whether you have the right Bible translation. Stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. 
the King James movement only Bible translation that's based on what Paul is saying. That's a part of the old shadowy world. I went there. I actually went there. Bible translations. Let me just give you a theory on Bible translation. There's not a perfect translation. Are there some better ones than other ones? Yes. And I can help you with that. But if you're going to base someone's belonging in the family of God, depending on what Bible translation, then you got problems, not with me, but with Paul. And Paul will look at your face and, and probably punch you. <laughs> Kidding. So we, we, come on, Jesus is our starting point. He, man, come on, he's our baseline. Not how you raise your kids. Now, I think there's a right way to raise your kids. There's a better way to raise your kids. But we base everything on Jesus. Amen? Then we go to verse 18. He continues this whole theme of exclusion. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Those people who practice body hatred, who think that, okay, if I work really hard to earn God's favor, then somehow I can, you know, belong, uh, that, that's rooted or is an indication of not strength but weakness. You miss the point. If you think that you're going to present your body to poisonous flies like some desert monks in the 4th and 5th century, naked in the marsh for seven years, and somehow that's going to get you into the kingdom of God, you've lost your mind. Asceticism is an indication of weakness, not strength, is what Paul is saying. And he continues, in the worship of angels, this could be, I read about 15, 20 commentaries on this. I have no idea what this means. It's probably angel liturgy. It probably is connected to the Qumran uh, community where they would practice trying to get into heaven with these really elaborate chants uh, and kind of a pseudo-worship of, of angels. The problem with that is Paul is saying, why do you want to get into heaven when heaven has already come in Jesus? Does it make sense? Going on, these, these kind of false teachers that are excluding people because they're no, not practicing uh, their particular lifestyle, they go on and on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And then they go to verse 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. So what is Paul saying in these two verses? He's saying, if there are people in the body of Christ that are excluding others or basically contributing to the exclusion of other people based on their lifestyle, their practice of extreme asceticism and visions and going on and on and on about it, number one, they're wrong. And number two, most likely what you'll see is they will distance themselves from the body of Christ. What's the true measure of God speaking through his people. The true measure is based on those who are willing to be a part of God's body. This is what happens. When you get puffed up in your mind, Paul uses an unusual word uh, describing hubris. It's this idea of being overinflated. It's kind of like on Thanksgiving uh, at the end, like four o'clock, right, right when you're watching Dallas Cowboys, you put on your stretchy pants your stomach, you feel gross, right? But you love it anyways, right? It's kind of this, this, this being puffed up. You can't function in life in stretchy pants. Can I get an amen? Like you don't feel well, you're distended. You're just, 
you feel sleepy and tired and need to recover about two months later from Thanksgiving. So this word is, is kind of an evocative word that describes the hu- natural human condition to be puffed up. And when, what happens when, when you allow these visions and angel dreams to, to define uh, your relationship with God, you actually demote God's word, and it will cause you, because you're puffed up in your head, to distance yourself from the body of Christ. And I've seen it so many times. I've had people come to me and say, God spoke to me through this vision, through this dream, and uh, they explain it to me, and I have to respectfully say, God did not speak that to you. Why? Well, number one, we put God's word over everything. We submit every vision, every ecstatic experience under the rubric of God's word. Can I get an amen? So did Paul have visions? Yeah. Have I had incredible experiences with the Holy Spirit? Yes, but I always submit them under the body of Christ. But he's making a point here. Man, if you want to know if someone really is authentically, I I really don't like that word, but just go with it, authentically following Jesus, they're going to belong and they're going to be a part of God's family. In other words, uh, we are equally dependent on each other. If any joint becomes disjointed or dislocated, the rest of the body suffers. Isn't it funny when you stub your toe, it just completely ruins your day. You're mad at everybody. You're saying bad things about cats. You don't really like the Oakland Raiders, right? You just, you lose your mind. And that's, again, this is kind of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying all growth is corporate. There is no thought of some members for Paul growing independently or out of step with the rest. That's why it's important that we belong in the family of God. That's why we're in this, as we talked about last week, we are in the struggle together, right? That God is working in our struggles. We're not isolated, lone, lonely uh, figures who are trying to do what God wants us to do in an individualistic context. We are following Jesus as a body. We are better together. Can I get an amen? Then in verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What Paul is saying is that your death is related to your former status. What's your former status? You were uncircumcised. You were part of that whole pagan experiment, right? You, you, you were not loved. You were uh, on the outside. You were, um, come on, you were trying to get in. You weren't a part of this blessing the world family. You didn't have all these promises and glory and, and rescue and blessing available to you because you were on the outside. And what Paul is saying is you have to make a decision to believe that you are really dead to your formal, uh, former state, your former uh, label, your f- who you used to be. You have to make a decision when you're in Christ because of the achievements of Christ, you are no longer related to who you used to be. Can I get an amen? And here's the problem. A lot of Christians, or maybe some Christians, allow their former life 
and their former status to be carried through into their relationship with Jesus as they walk into what he has for them. And Paul is saying, if you want new creation to flourish in your life, you're going to have to put to death your former status. If you don't put to death, well, I'm not loved. I never was loved. If you don't put to death, man, my parents, they did this to me. Or, Chris, you don't understand what I did when I was 18. I I messed so many people up. You have no idea how wicked I am. Or, Chris, you you don't understand the addictions that took over my life. If you don't make a decision to believe God's truth over your life and die to your former status, you will never enter into human flourishing and the new creation that God wants to go to work in your life. Come on. It's like, man, when I married my wife, I was no longer a bachelor. You can't be a bachelor and marry at the same time. You got to put to death all your bachelor desires, right? Video games all day. Like I never played video games, but whatever, right? I made a decision to my wife. You're number one. You're the love of my life. I commit everything to you. Okay, Saturdays used to be all about college football and food and barbecue everywhere. I didn't have to clean a thing. I could be a slob, right? And all the men said amen. When I got married, things changed. Drastically changed. I had no idea how they would change. But when you're married, you you have to die to your former state, to who you used to be. And this is what Paul is saying. With Christ, you die to the elemental spirits of the world. You're dying to a former status. You have a new status. Why then do you submit to all these regulations? Because all these regulations, they're a part of the shadowy world. And let me just say something really quick about regulations. I remember I used to read this. I had buddies that would read this. And then I know some of you are probably thinking this. Oh, here it is, Chris. Regulations, right? The Christian story is, is not about rules. It's not about regulations, right? We, 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 we can do whatever we want. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying the regulations that are related to your former status, regulations that uh, are related to the shadowy world, right, that have no ability to make you who God wants to make you into. Did that make sense? It didn't make sense in my mind, but just go with me, okay? You can't submit to these regulations. And some of you are like, wow, Chris, there's regulations, rules. We don't have any rules anymore as Christians. We can kind of do whatever we want. There's freedom, freedom, freedom. That's not what Paul is saying. James chapter 2 makes it very clear on a little side note that there is such a thing as the royal feeling of love. No, he says the royal law of love. You could even say the royal rule of love, which is what? Which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you fulfill this royal law of love by loving your neighbor as yourself, James says, you do well. That is that baseline for Christian human flourishing, fulfilling the royal law of love. Now, can I be your pastor here? Can I give you a pastor talk? No? Okay. I'm probably going to offend a lot of people here today. My point, 
My desire is not to offend anyone, but I have to make the case that Christians, no matter what, because we belong to Christ, are summons to love everyone. This is why racism is horrible. And this is why we will continue to condemn and will not tolerate racism in our church. Can I get an amen? We will speak the truth in love. And we will be a prophetic witness to our culture of God's love. Come on. And that there's no categories anymore in the kingdom of Jesus. But we will also embody this love. And let me say this. I, I regretfully went to a couple news stations this week because I just wanted to see what, wanted to get the temperature, right, of where we're at culturally. Uh, I went on Twitter and uh, went on Instagram and just started getting a little bit frustrated, so I had to kind of remove myself. And I just got to make, I got to make a statement here. Hating on someone, this is related to the royal law of love, hating on someone because they hate on someone is still hating on someone. We will condemn the sin. We will expose corruption and evil. Yes, we will talk about it. And yes, more than just talk about it, I think we should pray about it. Not just pray about it. We should try in our lives to embody loving our neighbor. Now, let me say something about neighbor. Trace, she wrote about this in her book. But neighbor, man, uh, James does not make the distinction of brother and sister. So neighbor is someone who's outside the sphere of God's membership. Family membership. So neighbor is intentionally ambiguous because it's everybody that's not a part of God's family. And we have a summons as the people of God to love them as we love ourselves. So we will condemn the sin. We will expose corruption. But we will also love our enemy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, are you with me on this? Don't shout me down. Come on, don't get too quiet on me. It's get, it, feel, it feels a little awkward. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, hey, man, it's easy to love your homeboys. Man, it's easy to love your fantasy football family. It's easy to love those who love you. Man, it's easy to love your friends, sometimes your family, sometimes people in your church. Man, it's easy. Jesus said even the tax collectors do that. You know what's hard? is loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, praying for them. Why? Because your Father in heaven loves not just a few people. He loves all people. So if you have hatred in your heart for the President of the United States, I would just say practice loving him. You mean you want me to write a letter to him? No, you practice loving him by praying for him. If you have hatred in your heart for a neo-Nazi group, we can still condemn the sin. Why don't you pray? Pray for the neo-Nazi. Pray for your enemy. Why? Because your Father in heaven sends the rain and allows the sun to whatever, shine on the good and the unjust. So this is the heart of Jesus for the people. 
We will speak the truth in love. We will find the tension in speaking the truth in love. We will listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are marginalized, who need justice. Can I get an amen to that? But we will also practice loving our enemy, those who we can't understand. So you might be saying, Chris, that's impossible. How do you find the tension between these two opposites? I don't think of them as opposites. I think they work together, speaking the truth in love and loving your enemy. I think that it's like, like hand in glove. I think it's something that we can do every single day. In fact, we do it every single day. Man, you, you condemn the sin and you love the, the sinner every single day. How so? Well, you do it to yourself. Come on, you condemn the sin in your own life, but you also take care of yourself. If you're a healthy human being, you take care of yourself. And so as Christians, we have a responsibility to practice this. Why? Because racism, hatred in all of its forms belongs to the shadowy world. The age of the king is here. You and I have a new status and a new identity. Our lives are being put back together. We're going to reflect the love and the wisdom of God to this world. And one day, Jesus will come back. Can I get an amen? And he will make all things new. Not in disembodied newness, but he will physically transform the heavens and earth and turn it into new heavens and new earth. And we're a part of this new creation project. We're a part of the healing of the world. Come on. And we're called to anticipate that coming of Jesus in our very present. Verse 21, he writes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's talking about austerity. We go to verse 22 and 23. It says, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And then he ends this chapter. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value. Everyone say no value. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then we come to Colossians 3. We made it, guys. Can I get a hand clap for this? I think this is, this is victory. So we have a segue here. Paul is now going to give us the clue to a genuine human Life. He's going to show us what it means to live a holy life. What's the basis now for holiness? Because I believe that God wants to transform us at the deepest levels of our existence. Can I get an amen? We're called to reflect the love of God and practicing the love of God has to be from the very, the, the deepest parts of your heart. How do we do that? How do we live like Jesus wants us to live? Well, the answer is found in Next four verses, Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, 
How do we respond to what Paul is talking about? We're not excluded. We're part of the family of God, right? God wants us to be holy. What's the basis for that holiness or for human flourishing? And what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 is really simple. You don't have to struggle to attain the status of membership in God's people. You already have it. I'm going to say it. You already have it. Okay, what's your status? Your status is you're a son and daughter of the king. You belong in God's family. In other words, you're risen with Christ. Your life's not your own. You're hidden with him. In other words, what what Paul is saying is that Jesus is in heaven, and what I tell my kids almost every night, where's heaven? And they, they say, heaven's attached to earth. I'm teaching them well. Heaven is not some location way out there, but heaven is like a control center. Jesus ascended to heaven. Heaven is not some distant place. It's overlapping with with earth in Jesus, in his death and burial and resurrection. Heaven and earth were united. They came came together. So Jesus in heaven is ruling the entire cosmos. Not only that, but new creation, what Paul is saying, is breaking out. The age of the king has come. The promises of new heavens and new earth and forgiveness and healing and shalom and myrtle trees replacing thorns and thistles, all of that language now has rushed forward into the present and you belong in, in, within that. You belong in God's family. You belong with Jesus. That is who you are. So if that is true, Paul is saying, Holiness and human flourishing for the Christian is not the result of something that you do, but it's the starting point for every Christian. Let me say it again. Holiness and human flourishing for the Christian is not the result of you doing anything. It's not. You you can't complete the achievements of Jesus in your life. It's the starting point. Holiness and being who God wants you to be is the starting point for every Christian. That's your baseline. So how do we enter into God's holiness? How do we enter into human flourishing? How does God transform us? What's when we begin to understand that our starting point is Jesus. Our starting point is, my word, and this is hard for us to understand, is holy. It's not deficient. Can I get an amen to that? It's not inadequate. It's not, I can't do it. It's not, this addiction is too strong or this addiction is too powerful or I'm overwhelmed with life. I don't know how I'm going to go up this upward hill of, of holiness. No, your starting point is you are holy in Christ and through his power, everyone say power. God makes all things new. And you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, work out God's love and God's patience and God's kindness, and God's goodness. Come on. So what, what do you need? If you want to be who God wants you to be, this is what Paul is saying. If you truly want to understand the status that you have in Christ, what do you need to do? I would say this week you don't need to do anything. My job is not to give you more information from the Bible. And I love information. 
My job, as I mentioned it last week, is not to give you more knowledge. My job is to train you to believe what you already know. One philosopher said you don't live up to your beliefs or down to your beliefs. You live your beliefs. What you need is to believe what Paul is saying about you. Oh, my gosh, I'm risen with Christ. That addiction has no power over me. It can't control me. All things are new. I, man, I just wish people get a little bit more excited about this. All things are new in Christ. It's powerful. And because of that, we can approach holiness in a different light. John chapter 20, as I close, verse 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe. Everyone say believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We start with belief, assurance. Come on. Jesus won the victory over the powers. My life is bound up in his life. All things are new. Paul does say, hey, your life is hidden with Christ. What does that mean? Hidden in Christ makes sense, kind of evokes the idea of not, not knowing how Christ is ruling the world, kind of has the idea of even not fully recognizing how God's working in your life. You might not know this, you might not feel this, but God is at work in your life. Like, isn't it funny how, like my wife and I this week, we were looking at old pictures of our kids and from two years ago. And it's amazing how our kids have transformed in two years. And you, you don't fully recognize it when you're in it, right? When you're with them every single day, you hear screams, you hear people saying, I'm going to kick you in the teeth, and all that kind of stuff. And you hear honey badgers, whatever, wild animals. But, you know, but you don't see it. But then when you go back, you're like, oh, my gosh, there's so much growth physically, emotionally, even spiritually in our kids, and this is what Paul is saying. Now, you might not know, you might not be aware of what Jesus is doing in your life. It might even be hidden to other people. But rest assured, when Jesus comes back and when he appears, you will receive glory. And what God has done through you will be recognized by all at his appearing. Like many people, we, let me just, I think we need to demystify um, this sensational vision of the Christian life. Like you have to have 250,000 followers to make a difference in this world, right? Or you gotta be on TV and there's nothing wrong with being on TV. God has called some of my best friends to be on TV and to be in culture and influencing people that we all know. And, and I applaud that and that's incredible. But just because you're not influencing Justin Bieber, just because you're maybe not on TV doesn't mean that God's not at work in your life. You might be an exhausted mom changing diapers, and you might be here discouraged because you're like, what am I doing with your life? You're raising some world changers. And you might not see it right now, but God is working in you. You might think, man, you're a single guy and you're in the backside of, I don't know, whatever, and no one sees you, but you're faithful and you're reading your Bible. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. 
about your future. Don't you worry about recognition. You just continue to be faithful. There's too many people in the church that want to be famous, and there's not enough people who want to be faithful. You be faithful. And then let God take care of the rest. At the end of the age, all those saints that no one knows about will be recognized by their Father. And everyone will know is people that have served Jesus in ways we can't even imagine. You are hidden in Christ. Jesus, when he returns, will make all things new. So how, how, do, how do we, as I close here, I want to pray for you. How do we develop this belief, right? Belief is important. you got to believe. you, you, you got to put to death your former status. you got to trust that even though it doesn't feel like it, new creation is flourishing in how do we do that? Well, Paul just gives us two words. You gotta set your mind. You gotta seek those things that are above, and then you gotta set your mind on Christ. You gotta set your mind. What does that imply? It implies that it takes effort to work this out. No, Chris, I thought I thought effort was antithetical to grace. No, 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 no. Earning is. You can't earn your way into the kingdom of Jesus. Can I get an amen? But from your place of, I'm, I'm a son, I'm a daughter of the king, there's effort to develop this context of belief and faith so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let me just say this really quick. I wish when I was six years old and I gave my life to Jesus that everything changed in my heart. I didn't turn into a, a little angel. God changed me, but there was still a lot of stuff that I had to work out. You see, human flourishing doesn't happen automatically. Human flourishing is your starting point, but it doesn't happen automatically. You have to set your mind. You have to put your mind on the things that are above every single day. You gotta take God's word and you gotta put your mind on it. Come on. You gotta spend time in the presence of Jesus every single day. Put your mind on things that are above. Why the mind? Well, the mind is the center of the, the really the renewal of the human heart. Paul tells us in Romans chapter one, uh, verse 28, that we did not see fit to acknowledge God, therefore God gave us up to an unfit mind. What, what, what is Paul saying? There's a connection between wrong thinking and false worship. You don't worship right, it messes your thinking up. It twists everything out of shape. You make bad decisions. You decide to follow San Francisco 49ers, right? You adopt 13 cats. You do whatever you want to do. You're twisted, right? Because you didn't worship. How does God transform our thinking? It's when we set our mind on Jesus as we read his word, which is an act of worship, and we spend practical time with him studying and worshiping the Father. When you do that, that's when faith begins to flourish. Faith is a result of you hearing the word and setting your mind on Jesus. Amen. That's all I have.
Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.